If you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We have been walking through the book of Exodus for the last six to seven, maybe eight weeks. Uh, Maybe more than that, I don't know, I didn't even look at the, the calendar, but for a while... And uh, the last five weeks, we've been looking at the plagues of judgment that God hands down to the Egyptians who are refusing to let His people Israel go. And this morning, we get to the final of the ten plagues, the Passover. What I would argue is one of the most significant Old Testament passages that point us forward to Jesus. So let's read together this morning, Exodus 12, starting in verse 1, down through verse 32. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each, or according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast." Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe this feast of unleavened bread, for on the very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever." 
In the first month, from the fourteenth day on, of the morning, at, or, or I'm sorry, on the four, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from all the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute forever for you and your sons. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, this is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel while in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went And did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Verse 29, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. If you've been here in the last handful of weeks as we've been walking through these plagues, you know the backstory to this text. You know that Egypt has had Israel in bondage as slaves for 400 years. That God raised up Moses and sent him to go to the king, Pharaoh, and to demand that he let Israel go. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened against God. And against these orders, he refuses to obey God. And as a result of that, God begins to show that he is superior to all the false Egyptian gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Each of the plagues leading up to this one has corresponded to one of the Egyptian gods. The true Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has been flexing and showing His superiority over all of nature through these plagues. And yet Pharaoh still refuses to let Israel go. Until our text this morning, where his will is finally broken 
and he can do nothing but let Israel go. There's lots of things that we can point out in this passage, but I want to draw your attention to four truths this morning that we can take away and apply to our own lives as we consider them. The first thing we see in our text this morning is that even God's people deserve judgment. Even God's people, Israel, deserve judgment. God tells Moses and Aaron and all the people of Israel that He will come and He will take the lives of the firstborn sons of all who do not hide beneath the blood of the Lamb. Notice here, Israel, God's people, the descendants of Abraham, they will not be saved from God's judgment just because they're descendants of Abraham. They will not be saved from God's judgment because of how good and righteous they are in comparison to the worldly Egyptians. They will not be saved from God's judgment because of the hardship and trial they face in bondage. The people of God, Israel, will not be saved because of their spiritual leader Moses. They won't be saved because they live in Goshen, separated from the Egyptians. Their last name their family tree, their spiritual connections, their righteous living, the difficulties they face. None of these things will save them. The people of Israel are descendants of Abraham. They are God's people in name. But their spiritual condition before a holy God is no different than the spiritual condition of the Egyptians. Both the Israelites and the Egyptians come from Adam and therefore have been born with a sinful nature. Both the Israelites and the Egyptians have fallen short of God's glory and are selfishly pursuing their own kingdoms. Both the Israelites and the Egyptians have earned God's judgment. Moses doesn't tell Israel here, listen, y'all are good to go. Just wait and see what God's going to do to the bad guys. He doesn't say that. There's nowhere in the text. Instead, he says, you too need to be saved from the judgment of a holy God. And the same thing, friends, is true today. You might be someone who has grown up in and around church your whole lives. You might come from a God-fearing family. You might be a respectful citizen and a hard worker. You might vote your values, but friends, none of those things will save us. You might look at others in our world and our community who worship false gods, who are pursuing injustice, who are lazy or disrespectful, who think backwards about different things, and you might compare yourself to them and say, I'm pretty good. But friends, none of those things should make us think that we're better before God than they are. God does not grade on the curve. God's standard is perfection and holiness. We have all fallen short of that standard. And what that means is, is that even if we have grown up in a certain setting, even if we're familiar with stories about the Bible, even if our butts sit in pews on Sundays and our checks go in plates on Sundays, even if those things happen, friends, those things don't save us. We are no better before a holy God than even 
the most evil people in the world because God's standard is perfection. He does not grade on the curve. And what that means is this. Friends, we must check our superiority complex and our self-righteousness at the foot of the cross of Jesus where we are reminded that the Son of God had to die for my sin. Not just for the sins of everyone else. For my sin. The foot of the cross is where all men and women are humbled and shown unworthy. Friends, we all deserve God's Judgment. That is true in Israel in Exodus 12 with the Israelites and the Egyptians. And it's true today as well. That's our first truth we can take out of this passage. But there's more. The second thing we see is that only faith in bloodshed can save. Only faith in the shedding of blood can save us from God's judgment. God provides salvation from God's judgment. And to be honest with you, it is a bloody mess. It's a bloody mess. Have you ever felt weirded out when we sing songs about fountains filled with blood? If you went to a park and you were visiting a city and everyone said, oh, you've got to come check out this park, it's so beautiful, there's a fountain, and you went over there expecting to throw coins in and see the water and the kids laughing and the butterflies and all that, but instead you saw blood spurting out of the fountain, you would think, what kind of messed up person sent me to this park, right? That is a weird type of thing to sing about. Have you noticed in the songs that we sing, it's all about blood? Some of you probably hate the sight of blood. Different people might not. You might work in a profession where you're around it all the time. And yet, the Christian hymns, the Christian songs that we sing are always about blood. Why? Because salvation is a bloody mess. Every family in Israel is told that they must take a spotless year-old lamb and spend most of a week with it. Here in in Exodus 12, they're going to take it that night, but as they remember this ritual for years to come, they're to take this spotless year-old lamb and they're they're, they're to bond with it, feed it, play with it, give it a name, treat it like a pet. And then later in the week at the twilight on the 14th day of the month, they are to slit the lamb's throat drain its blood in a basin and roast its flesh to be eaten in totality. Can you hear the children protesting? Daddy, why does my lamb chop have to die? Daddy, why does my lamb, my sheep, my pet, why does it have to be slaughtered? But the father must do this. Why? Because if the lamb doesn't die, one of his children will. We all love our pets, but if we're thinking right, we love our children far more than any animal. This shed blood of this animal is to be painted on the doorpost outside of their home. The flesh of this animal is to be roasted and eaten inside the home where they are to stay all night. They're supposed to eat it with a side of bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Now if we're honest, if we're completely honest, this is a strange ritual 
to modern ears. If you came to church this morning and I had Sammy Coates walk a lamb up front and in front of all of you I slit its throat and we drained its blood. and all. The, if you go to a church and they're doing that, I want to encourage you, you might have accidentally gotten caught up in a cult, right? You, you don't need to do that today. If you find yourself in a setting where they're doing that today, go find a different church, okay? And yet, this is what happens. And if we're honest, to modern ears, this is a strange ritual. To modern ears, where we so often treat animals as if they are humans where we never want to do anything that will make our kids sad, where we very rarely use blood as decor for our homes, and where we prefer seasoning that tantalizes our taste buds instead of unleavened bread. This entire ritual from beginning to end sounds strange. But it's through this ritual, it's through this sacrifice, that God will save His people from His judgment, and from their bondage. And every aspect of it is filled with significance. The selection of the lamb matters because it must not have any defects or the sacrifice won't work. The family has to identify with and spend time with this lamb so they'll begin to develop affection for it so that they will feel the cost of its dying. Its death will be a substitution. Its blood painted on the doorpost of their home will communicate to God, someone has already died here. They identify further with this lamb by eating its flesh, remembering its life, remembering why it had to die. The side of bitter herbs that they eat with it is to remind them of their harsh and bitter slavery for four centuries in Egypt. The side of unleavened bread is eaten because leaven is like yeast. Leaven makes the dough rise, which in the ancient world would take time. You couldn't just microwave bread. Back then it took time to do this, but there will be not enough time for the bread to rise because their salvation will come quickly. God is going to come to Egypt and in each home of the Israelites and the Egyptians, somebody's going to die. Either the firstborn son or the Passover lamb. When God arrives, He will take the life leading to mourning of the family left behind. But when God sees the shed blood of the Lamb, He will pass over that home because someone has already died in the place of the firstborn son. This is what Israel is told to be ready for. This is the last plague that finally gets through to Pharaoh. This is the sacrifice that saves. And it saves because the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because God always does what is right. God is just. God is good. God is righteous. And because of that, sin and rebellion and evil must be punished. Forgiveness cannot be offered. 
without God's justice also being upheld. Judgment must come and forgiveness must come only through the shedding of blood or God is not God and He is not holy and just. And this sacrifice of the Passover, it involves faith. When they took this lamb and they obeyed these commands from God, it was an act of faith. It was saying to God, God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know I deserve your judgment. And this lamb has died in my place. Its blood has been shed, so my blood doesn't have to be shed. This lamb is my substitute, and I am believing that its shed blood will turn away your righteous judgment from me. As they eat the unleavened bread... They're believing by faith that there's no time for the bread to rise because salvation is coming to them quickly. They're dressed with sandals on, staff in hand as they eat this meal, believing that their deliverance is at hand. This is what Israel is believing. This is what they're thinking throughout this ritual. It required faith in the shedding of blood that can turn away God's judgment, and set them free from their bondage. Even God's people deserve judgment, and only faith in the shedding of blood can save. But there's more that we see in our text. We see thirdly that remembering, remembering is required for the redeemed. Remembering what God has done, what He's about to do, is required for the redeemed. Israel is told, you're not just going to perform this ritual once, you'll perform it every year for all your days as a people. God wants them to never forget the unbreakable bondage they used to be in. God wants them to never forget the helpless condition that they were in. He never wants them to forget the power the enemy had over them. He wants them to never forget how God had shown up and flexed and saved them through the plagues and the Passover. So what does God do? He commands His people that each year they will remember this salvation through this ritual. Each year they will take a lamb... They will put its blood on the doorpost and they will go inside and consume it. They will remember this for all their days. Their identity is to be found in being a people who were saved by the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb. That's how God wants Israel to identify themselves forever as He rewrites their calendar. When someone asks, what what does it mean to be one of God's people? He wants them to look at that questioner and say, it means that we were a people who were saved by our God through the shedding of blood who defeated all of our enemies. They were never to forget who they were and how they were saved. Because when they did, they would begin to try to find their identity in something else. But the primary identity marker for God's people needed to be this. And notice that God wants them to teach their children and grandchildren these things. God doesn't say, listen Moses and Aaron, I know that this is kind of a gross and barbaric ritual. And I know it's probably going to freak your kids out. So just, just don't. 
Just, just do this after they go to bed, right? Don't let them know about all this weird bloodshed and painting the doors. Just, just leave them alone. We want to protect them from anything scary and bloody. No. No, God says, parents, grandparents, tell your kids these stories. Explain to them why the blood had to be shed. How it is that God saves and how bondage can truly be overcome. He wants them to pass this on from generation to generation because remembering is required for the redeemed. There's one last truth in our passage I want to point your attention to. And that's this. That salvation fundamentally changes your life. Not only is Israel now going to be safe from God's judgment liberated from their Egyptian bondage, called to lives of faith and remembrance, but they're also called here to live differently. God says that this salvation is going to change their calendar and how they track time from now on. If you're here and you've ever seen the A&E show, Duck Dynasty, I believe it's off air now, you probably have seen an episode where the patriarch of that family, Phil Robinson, says over and over that only one man has come in history who has changed how we track time. Referring to Jesus. He says this again and again, and what he's referring to is if you look at a calendar of world history, we count down backwards to basically when Jesus came. B.C. stands for before Christ. A.D. stands for Addo Domini, which means the year of our Lord. Meaning that history literally has been changed. How we track time has been changed based off the significance of that event. But that's not the first time that that happened in history. Long before that, in Israel's history, God tells them that their yearly calendar will now be changed because of this great act of salvation. Their new year will now begin with the month Abib. And on certain days of this month, they would have the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During this first month of the year, they would always remember the deliverance God had given them in the past. Soon, when they get to Mount Sinai, God is also going to give them laws about the Sabbath so that one day out of each week they are to rest from all their work and remember their God, remember their identity, remember who they are, remember what matters. All throughout Exodus we see that God expects that salvation that He has provided will fundamentally change our lives, even our schedules. Even our weeks, our months, our years should be dictated by God and what He calls us to. But God doesn't just expect that our salvation will change our calendars. He also expects that it will make us holy. In the coming weeks, I'm going to talk a lot about this feast of unleavened bread and and what all it means and why it matters to us. But I want to briefly point out this morning why God is so concerned that during this feast there be no leaven in any of the homes. I want to just mention it and then we'll elaborate it on it further in the coming weeks. Leaven in the Bible, as I mentioned earlier, 
functions similarly to yeast. It slowly will work its way through the dough and the bread and it will cause it to rise. Each time that bread was made, there was leaven that was pulled out of it to put into and start the next batch. And in and of itself, leaven and yeast are not bad. But all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God inspires the prophets and the apostles to use this imagery of leaven to describe the effect sin has on our lives. Sin idolatry, worldly influences can slowly work their way into our lives and can grow underneath the surface, working themselves into every area just as leaven works its way through bread. This unleavened bread of the Passover wasn't only to remind Israel of how quickly their salvation would come. It was also a reminder for them to be holy. They were, about, they were about to be physically walking out of Egypt, leaving this geographic location. But when they left physically, God wanted all of the Egyptian ungodliness they had picked up along the way to stay in Egypt and not come with them. Many of the Hebrews, the Israelites, had begun to worship Egyptian gods as they'd been there their whole lives. Many of them had been sinfully influenced by the ungodly Egyptians among whom they dwelled. And this feast of unleavened bread is meant to remind the Israelites forever and ever that God saves us so that we will be sanctified. To remind them that God forgives us so that He will make us holy. God redeems us from our bondage so that we will be different and distinct from the world. God's people are to be a light in a dark place. Because salvation fundamentally changes not only our standing with God, not only our future eternity, but it also changes our lives now in a practical, meaningful, visible way. Believers who have trusted in the shed blood of the Lamb and have been delivered from their bondage are called to use their time and their efforts towards personal holiness and living for the Lord. Because salvation always fundamentally changes your lives. Friends, this is an odd story. It's a story that was written and occurred historically thousands of years ago. But but how we respond to this story has massive implications. Some hear this story and honestly they think this is kind of strange and barbaric and unsanitary and unjust. Many will hear this story and they'll think, why is God going to take someone's life in order to judge sin? What did all those Egyptian children do? Why does God require the Israelites to put their kids through the trauma of watching their pet die? Why does He make them go through fearing for their life as God comes in to judge His enemies? There's lots of questions. And when we are asking these questions, I believe that we're showing that we are starting out 
with a false assumption about God and ourselves. We are often asking those questions because we are starting out by assuming that we are good, righteous, holy people who deserve and have earned certain privileges and rights from God. We start out by assuming that we are innocent and pure and blameless and a God who would judge evil must be unjust and not worthy of worship. Many will hear stories like this in our world and say, that's not my God. My God is all love and no justice. My God is all grace and forgiveness and no righteousness. And yet, friends, that is a God of our imaginations. That is not the God of the Bible. The Bible says that God is light, God is pure, God is righteous, God is holy, and that we are fallen sinners who rebel against God, go our own way, and as a result deserve judgment. And friends, if you're here this morning and you don't believe that God is holy and that you are a sinner, then all of this talk about the need for bloodshed is going to fall on deaf ears. Jesus said it far better than I can when He said in the Gospels that those who consider themselves to be healthy don't see the need for a doctor. You have to see your desperate condition. You have to acknowledge your need of salvation or you will never consider the shedding of blood to be a welcomed and glorious sight. If you start with the assumption that you're a good person who's going to go to heaven because you're better than terrorists on the other side of the world, you've never killed anyone, you've never stolen from anyone, if you compare yourselves to other people and say, at least I'm not as bad as them, if you start with those assumptions, then the good news of salvation will not seem relevant and might even sound gross and barbaric to you. This is why proud people in our world who consider themselves full of worldly wisdom, consider this idea of salvation through bloodshed to be backwards and foolish. This is my many in our families, many in our communities, possibly even some in this room this morning, don't believe the Bible, don't truly worship God, don't commit themselves to living for His kingdom. Because they find the Bible's message about them being sinners to be offensive. They find and they feel entitled to being blessed by God. And they proudly refuse to listen to that old, old story that is full of bloodshed, sacrifices, repentance, and faith. But friends, in the book of Exodus, those who trust in the shedding of blood in Israel, are saved from the judgment of God and liberated from their bondage. But those who ignore God's salvation and don't hide under the blood and don't believe in the Passover lamb find themselves mourning as death draws near. And the same thing is true today. Because the Israelite bondage in Exodus... God's power and His plagues and His judgment in Exodus. This salvation through bloodshed in the book of Exodus. All of these things happen to point Israel and to point us forward to something even greater. All of these things happened in history so that God could give His people categories for a truer 
and a greater salvation to come in the future. Not a salvation from physical bondage, but a salvation from spiritual bondage that leads to spiritual and eternal death. God always has and always will stand opposed to sin and uphold justice by condemning evil in our world and in our lives. And our only hope is to put our faith in the shed blood of a pure and spotless lamb. But the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never truly atone for sin and turn away God's judgment. That's why the Passover ritual and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament continued year after year after year after year because a greater sacrifice was needed that would once for all atone for sin, that would once for all turn away God's judgment, that would once for all bear God's wrath in our place. And that sacrifice was no year-old sheep, but it was a son, the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. And those who will be saved from God's future judgment, those who will be declared not guilty before the judgment seat of God must put their faith in the shed blood of God's perfect, sinless Son. Those who will be saved from God's judgment today must identify with Him. They must publicly identify with Him through baptism. They must find their identity in Him and in nothing else in this life. They must live their entire lives remembering the sacrifice He made for them, the sacrifice He made that saved them. They must preach the gospel to themselves regularly, reminding themselves of who they were and of what Jesus did for them. They must remember His sacrifice as they gather together with their church family and take the Lord's Supper, remembering His body that was broken and His blood that was shed in our place. And this salvation will fundamentally change the lives of those who have trusted in Him and His blood. They will commit themselves to living by God's Word, to living by the power of God's Spirit, to living in the presence of God's people, the church. They will use their time and their talent and their treasure to be committed to their Savior and cling. And they will be different than the world around them, saying no to sin and no to world influence just like Israel is called to not have leaven in their home. The Apostle Paul, thousands of years after these historical events took place in Exodus, was calling the Corinthian church that was full of unholiness and sin. He was calling them to holiness. And this is what he says, just Hear this imagery that the Apostle Paul uses. This isn't Old Testament. This is New Testament. This is after the life, death, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Do you not know, church, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump because you really are unleavened. Why? 
For Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of sin, the leaven of malice and evil, but let us celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Apostle Paul could use any imagery in the world to call God's people to be distinct and holy, but he pulls out this imagery from Exodus and he says, Christ is the true Passover lamb. And we are called to be different as a result of what He's done in our lives. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you've trusted in His life, death, and resurrection as the only way to be saved, God calls you to holiness to sacrifice, to service, and to mission. He calls you to those things. He changes your heart so you want those things. But friends, we cannot be the church and we cannot impact our community for Christ when we are comfortably living with unrepentant sin and idolatry in our lives. We cannot be the true church and a light in our community when we are spectators instead of servants among God's people. We cannot be the church and be a light in our dark world when we're not using our time and our talent and our influence to talk about Jesus with the lost in our community and living on mission. Our unholiness our spiritual apathy, our spiritual laziness, our lack of missional living as New Covenant blood-bought believers would be like an Israelite reading Exodus 12 and then saying, let's go guys, let's get a bunch of leaven and let's just put leaven all in our home. It cannot be so among God's people. If you've been redeemed, By the blood of the Lamb, you must remove the leaven by pursuing holiness, pursuing obedience, living on mission, being a servant, not a spectator, making sacrifices for the Lord Jesus who sacrificed Himself for you. And I pray that if you're a believer this morning who's here, that you will join me in committing yourself anew to these things today. And if you're here this morning and you hear these truths from Exodus 12 and you recognize that for a long time you've been assuming that God would accept you just as you are. If you realize that you've been thinking for a long time that you're a good enough person and you'll be in heaven because you've done more good things than bad things. If you've been trusting in being close to someone who loves God and your family if you've been trusting in any sort of works, anything other than the shed blood of Jesus for salvation, if you're here and you finally see that you have a great need to repent and to believe, to be saved by the bloody mess of a slain lamb, Jesus Christ, if that's you, all you have to do is repent of your sins, believe in the finished work of Jesus, and surrender your life to Him as Lord and King. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of 
the world. Will you believe that today? I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy. And we acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that it is only by that grace that we can be saved. It is only through faith in what Jesus has done that we can be saved. God, we are not a perfect people. God, even as believers, we still have doubts, we still have temptation, we still have indwelling sin that we have to fight against and put to death every day. God, even as believers, we must put effort into pursuing holiness, living on mission, being different from the world around us. And we pray, God, that Your Spirit will be at work in us to make us more like Jesus. God, give us a hunger for You. Give us a desire for Your Word. Give us a will that longs to be near You and be led by You. Fill us with Your Spirit this morning so that when we walk out of these doors, God, we are hungry to live for You, desperate to do Your bidding. And God, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know You, if there's anyone here who recognizes their need of salvation this morning, God, I pray that Your Spirit will prompt them, Lord, to pray to You, to cry out to You, to acknowledge their need, to believe only in the shed blood of Jesus, to surrender their lives. And God, I pray that if You're doing that in anyone's life this morning, Lord, that You will give them the boldness to make that public, to come down and share that with the congregation, to come and talk to me. If there's anyone with needs this morning, Lord, I pray that You'll lead them to respond now as we sing this song about the deep, deep love that You have for us. God, we pray that You will be magnified and that You'll help us to respond in whatever way Your Spirit leads. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.